This is a podcast from Art and Reality, the role of visual culture in the post-independent state. This University College Dublin Symposium examined the role of visual culture in constructing and critiquing the Irish Free State and national identity in the aftermath of political independence. The symposium took place in the UCD Humanities Institute on the 19th of October 2018 and was a joint initiative between the UCD School of Art, History and Cultural Policy and NIVAL, the National Irish Visual Arts Library. The symposium was funded by UCD Decade of Centenaries. All ten papers at the symposium were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media and are now available online. In this podcast, James Crompton Walker's Irish Life and Landscape, a paper by Angela Griffith. I suppose for my art historical paper today, I have to say that, um, I would like to introduce or maybe reintroduce for some of you um, a man of two names, um, James or John Crampton Walker, because he comes up as both in terms of the sources that you look at. Um, But more often than not, he's listed as you see there, which is J. Crampton Walker. So who was he? And I suppose there's opportunities sometimes for us to to look at individuals, and that's what I'm going to do here this afternoon, who's, I suppose, in terms of... Historiography or histories seems to have been forgotten, but when you look really closely at them, they seem to have been very important um, and very impactive in terms of art um, culture in Ireland at the turn of the, at the first decades of the 20th century. Anyway, so Walker himself, he was an artist. He saw himself as that. He also was a writer. And he was the founder of a significant exhibition event in Dublin that, hap- that happened annually for seven years, which was named the New Irish Salon. Its importance to the Irish cultural calendar was recognised by contemporary critics, including Thomas Bodkin, who wrote in the studio that it rivaled the Royal Hibernian Academy in merit. And Walker was also commended by George Russell in the pages of the Irish Statesman, claiming that the new Irish salon was providing a necessary jolt to the state environment of the Royal Hibernian Academy. Unfortunately, there appears to be no extant archive on the new Irish salon, and this is why we do this. If there's anyone here that is aware of that or those sorts of papers, I'd be very, very um, grateful if you would direct me there. Um, however, we do have accounts from newspapers of the day, and they give us some interesting insight into Walker and his work in promoting contemporary Irish art. And in addition to his directorship of the New Irish Salon, in about in 1926, Walker, working with the Talbot Press, compiled a book that he believed would best represent Irish contemporary art and that would reflect truthfully Irish society at that time and its scenery. Um, So outlining Walker's contribution to Irish art in the first half of the 20th century, I will consider his achievements in creating a commercial space for contemporary art and his role in sustaining a supportive economic outlet and a cultural network for artists. It will consider his curation of a complex and nuanced vision of a post-independence Ireland, one ultimately and unsurprisingly reflecting, dare I say, a conservative form of modernism. New Irish Salon did support the work of experimental Irish artists and it displayed the work of artists from abroad. Um, His book, Irish Life and Landscape, which is on um, part of the exhibition over in the corner, it's the naval copy that we have there, the purchasing of which was described in national media as an act of patriotism alongside the New Irish Salon provides a fascinating window into Irish contemporary art production, promotion, dissemination and audiences in the early years of the Irish Free State. Little is known about Walker. 
um, he, about him personally, other than a couple of short obituaries following his death in 1942 at the age of 52. His father was a king's counsel, as was his brother. Therefore, he was a member of the upper echelons of Irish society, and he lived in Fitzwilliam Square his lifetime, and he had a summer home in Kerry. He studied first medicine in Trinity College and then decided to um, change tack and become an artist and he went to the Metropolitan School of Art. Um, he was known for his landscapes and his flower paintings in particular and this one here is in the collection of the Ulster M Museum. But it says his role as an organiser of exhibitions in Dublin um, and the promoter of contemporary art that interests me here. And it seems that he was at the fore of all art exhibitions held in the capital and beyond. A few select examples include he founded the Black and White Artist Society in, in Ireland, modelled on a similar society in London. He was involved in hanging RHA exhibitions, exhibitions in the RDS, including those at the Horse Show. He organised a number of exhibitions of contemporary art in the Fine Arts Society in London. He was honorary secretary for the the Exhibition of Irish Art in Brussels in 1930. He lectured in Brussels, London and Boston and in Ireland on Irish art. Um, and it seems with his efforts and perhaps because of his art, Crampton was elected to an associate um, RHA in 1930. From 1923 to 29, he held this annual exhibition of contemporary art in Mills Hall, which was on Marion Row. And it was held for about a month, so it was held at the early February to early March. And this he named the New Irish Salon. Walker was clearly someone who had his finger on the artistic pulse, pulse in Dublin. And an important aspect of the New Irish Salon, to my mind, in terms of its agency, was it became a major social event. Guests were listed and photographed in national press. Works were critiqued and described as providing abundant material for discussion of quite a lively and stimulating <coughs> character. Another important aspect of the NIS exhibitions is that Irish art was shown alongside the work of English, Dutch, French and Russian artists as well, widening Dubliners' visual experience and allowing for comparison with Irish artists. So you would have men like Clausen, John, um, Rackham, Nicolette, Glaze, Lote and Zadine as well. And while we are familiar with some of the disparaging comments that were made regarding modernist works when they were first shown in Dublin, such as George Russell's infamous review of Jellet's work in the Dublin Painters Exhibition, which he described as artistic malaria, the reviews of the new Irish Salon was interesting to read as it's possible to arguably track over the years of its existence an evolving attitude to modern art. For example, the Irish Times critic in February of 24, the year just after Russell's um, remarks, attempts in their review of the new Irish Salon to come to terms with those at the further edges of modernist painting in Ireland, including Jallet. And the review read, for those who are curious to see some of the queer things, now it's not all complimentary, I say that, but uh, being done nowadays under the name of art, there are some strange arrangements of angular patches of colour, for it is difficult to see any reason, and some other curiosities for which although they are not according to the ordinary canons of Western picture-making, there may be something to say. And that said, the reviewer goes on to disparage Glaze and, and uh, Jellet and then says, with all readiness to appreciate new ideas, we fail nevertheless to see what some artists represented here are trying to do. Now, you can see it, the, the language is negative, but I would also say that there's a certain um, recognition that artists are, will seek to, use, to find new ways to express themselves, to cha challenge the canon. 
Even George Russell had drawn in his horns, so to speak, when he reviewed the same exhibition, noting the innovations of Jellet, saying, we can even be grateful for the extravagance, uh, extravagances of Cubist futurists and their kind, because they make us realise our complete boredom with careful, uninspired academic art. And by 1926, Russell's review of the NIS exhibition recognised there were many facets of modernism, that Jellet and Henry were as remote from realism as each other, and that both were justified. Colours have a psychic appeal quite apart from nature. A painting is justified if a painting conveys the psychological effect aimed at. Now this, dare I say, more tempered language reflected public opinion, as it seems that the Irish public were becoming more aware of, um, uh, modern art, and more importantly, were willing to buy Irish and international contemporary art because the Irish, new Irish salon was financially successful, raising over five hundred pounds in revenue, roughly, which, if you put it in today's money, would be about thirty-four thousand euros for a month's exhibition. So, following years of success with the salon, Crampton Walker then also produced the book. In 1926, the Irish Life and Landscape was published and ready for sale at the end of the year in time for the Christmas market. It was advertised as a gift book. Those artists that were graced on the pages of the book were those that graced the walls of the new Irish salon on various occasions. It followed on from comparable volume, a comparable volume, which is Thomas Boykin's Four Landscape Painters, um, which also was published by Talbot. Um, and it was advertised in the back of this um, some six years after it was published, so it seems there was a few copies still available. Anyway, the, I, the Talbot Press, which was founded in 1913, and um, which was mentioned earlier by Orla Fitzpatrick, began as a literary branch of the Educational Company of Ireland, founded in 1910. Now, the stated purpose of the founders of the Talbot Press was to address what they saw as a need to create books that were attractive in appearance, better printed, better illustrated, better bound than others in Ireland, and in every respect as good as those that were produced in Great Britain, but they were, not, were wholly manufactured in Ireland from Irish materials from Irish people. This type of promotional language is very interesting because it's almost verbatim for that used by the arts and crafts cooperatives of Dunimer and Kula. But here, Talmud is very much a commercial uh, concern. So the use of Irish materials, content, skills, was not seen as the exclusive remit of the luxury handmade market, but also viable and expedient in, uh, in terms of the world of enterprise. The Irishness of the company and by extension their book and content is implied by the insular art in their press mark and also the shamrock motifs that you see there at the front of the book as well. By 1930s, the company, this is the Talbot Press, had published over 500 titles described as masterworks of Irish literature. The directors recognised that their business was cashing in on a surge of nationalist fervour that marked the early years of the Free State. That said, the directors of the Talbot Press were also willing to support speculative ventures, claiming that all of their publications were published because of their merit and none were refused for commercial reasons. So we must see Walker's publication in the light of the Talbot Press agenda. The resulting book was considered by all reviewers to be one of the finest specimens of Irish publishing at the time, remarking on the number of high-quality colour plates that were represented and the quality of the binding, in this case, which is using Irish linen. Um, uh, it cost 10 shillings and sixpence, and was described as a moderate cost, but really was um, expensive in comparison to other books of similar. The Bodkin book was selling for five shillings. There were 67 works reproduced in the book, 20 are reproduced in colour in a range of styles and media. It demonstrates the range of stylistic approaches in Ireland, and that includes in terms of theme. Um, of the 67, 22 were women, um, and each artist was represented by a double page and an image supported by text by Walker. 
The book opens with an image of Walker's old mentor who had taught him Nathaniel Hone, and an image of the medal designed by Oliver Shepard describes Hone as one of Ireland's greatest landscape painters. Now, the foreword is written by Crampton Walker, and it acknowledges the formative role that Lane's, going back to Hugh Lane's Municipal Gallery of Modern Art, had then acquired by the city of Dublin in bringing together for the first time a collection of modern pictures to the notice of the public. Irish artists who were previously almost unknown, Walker also recognises the importance of the excellent illustrated catalogue produced by Lane for the Municipal Gallery, which also was worked on by Sarah Sahelia, Celia Harrison, which Walker doesn't mention. And he claims that since its publication, Irish art has grown and con- developed considerably. From the manner in which it is phrased, it can be inferred that Walker's making an argument for the importance of publications to promote Irish art in addition to exhibitions. And he's clearly modelling himself on Lane as an organiser of modern art exhibitions um, and as a producer of books to inform the public and to promote and encourage an Irish art market. In his foreword, he claims that it is now the time to bring to the public Irish artists representative of the 20th century. Walker claims that despite the troubles in Ireland, he includes the, uh, which he included the burning of the RHA in 1916, Irish art, he says, is in a strong position. There is a decided increase in the number of exhibitions, and he lists the RHA, the new Irish Salon, Dublin Painters, the Dublin Sketching Club, and the Watercolour Society, not to mention those by individual artists. And he refers also to exhibitions in Belfast and Cork. Um, But it's important to point, his is the only independent body. He also stated at the end of the last century in the 1800s and up to the present, which is 1920s, Irish artist numbers have increased and standards are higher. And he states that the Irish work has been acquired by public galleries in the British Isles and the continent, which includes the Gallery de Luxembourg, the Tate, the Walker in Liverpool and in the United States. But what I also want to just note, just as an aside, at no time does he use the term an Irish school. That doesn't seem to be at any point anything that he refers to. He acknowledges while many artists have left Ireland to find encouragement elsewhere, nevertheless there are leading artists at work in Ireland who confine themselves almost wholly to the study of Irish life and landscape. The theme of the book was congratulated by reviewers. Writing on the Irish life and landscape Irish and Irish art more generally, the Sunday Independent bemoaned the fact that the Irish public did not have images of Ireland on their walls. Now, as an indication of what there was, stating that an Irish household ought to refuse to hang on its wall hackneyed old Dante meets Beatrice, St. Umerus at the Ford, or Watts Hope, while it lacks Keating's thrilling, as they describe it, Men of the West, and Henry's exhilarating Connemara. Um, and that, I suppose, gives us some insight into tastes of pe- you know, people's houses at that time. It goes on to say that we owe a debt to Jack Yates, though he's not in the book, uh, and ja- Paul Henry and John Keating, who forced the world to recognise Irish themes as a matter of art. The young artists in the book have won their triumphs by painting what they saw, is what they claim. And Walker's own list of the artists of import as they appear in order include... Sorry, I missed that, yeah... They, they include John Lavery, William Orpin, John Festus Kelly, which Billy described as English, but he's, here he's Irish, um, and Paul Henry. Um, and then also then we have Mildred Butler, William um, uh, Leach, and E.M. Uh, e. O'Rourke Dickey. So they're the ones he mentioned specifically in his essay. In terms of style and subject, the pages demonstrate a range of styles, and that of academic realist art and those then that are seen to be, dare I say, an acceptable form of modernism. And they're dispersed beside each other. There's no Columbia, you know, there's no sort of curation is that. They're, they're all interspersed. Mainly Gellid and Evie Hone are conspicuous in their absence, <clears throat> even though they both exhibited in the new Irish salon. 
The modernists include Dickey, who was roundly applauded by all critics, and Ainsley. Um, you have Ainsley, uh, uh, Swansea, Mary Swansea, and Harry Kernoff. They were also listed and seen as moder- as sort of modern, more modernist. Those that were noted by the critics, particularly, were Keating. These were the ones that were. But sorry, those that were noted by the. Um, by the critics were Keating, Crampton Gore, and Tui. The diversity of themes was actually not lost on critics. The Irish Times described it as a revelation of the truth that, is, that there is not one Ireland, but many Irelands, as there are fresh and eager imaginations dwelling on this island of dark hills and luminous waters. For Walker, he was creating what he described as a record of the period, that Ireland was a diverse place, was home to a diverse group of artists, even though to our eyes the works selected are not necessarily representative of international avant-garde, differences between artists were recognised by the critics and audiences. And again, dare I say, a, a more palatable or acceptable form of modernism. Prince also featured um, prominently in the New Irish Salon, and therefore seven examples of Irish printmaking was included in Irish Life and Landscape. There's no other publication that does something similar. Of the seven works chosen, four were of urban subjects, which is notable given the predominant emphasis on the book on the rural landscape. Robert Gibbings' Dublin Snow, which is a Dublin view, um, which you can see there at the bottom, um, that, uh, that was concerning more abstracted forms, as you can see there. The etching, Myra Hughes' etching, is of, of Trinity College. And both Atkinson and uh, George Atkinson and Stella Solomons are represented by, middle, uh, by sorry, working class views of the urban um, city. So what we have here is Hoey's Court, and then there's Shandon Bells as well. Also in the print work is the work of um, Edward Lawrenson, um, and we also have Fitzgerald as well. A more typically Irish subject is represented and defined as defined by, say, works like um, Yeats and Henry from the west of Ireland. Now, in these prints, they choose to represent the lives of Irish inhabitants. Um, Lawrenson is describing the, the activity of burning kelp. Fitzgerald is a woman sp- spinning. And I suppose in both cases, the rural inhabitants are depicted as industrious, productive and self-determining and therefore contributors to an Irish free state. So how to analyse Walker's um, apparent success and contribution to Irish contemporary art in the 20s and 30s? One approach is to consider it in relation to consumer theory and cultural economics. Studies by people such as Anne Helmrich has looked at the late Victorian age in London in relation to the commodification and marketing of art among the rising middle classes. It appears to me that Walker is modelling his commercial activities on what he saw in London and where the, econo- where the cultural economic infrastructure already existed, which served the needs of artists, which developed an audience and sustained an art market. London's commercial galleries included Goupil, Grosvenor Gallery, Dudley Gallery and the Fine Arts Society on Bond Street. Now, it all had premises, a hub. Now, Walker didn't have this because all of his, but they were all held in the one place in, in, in Mills Hall. Walker was particularly familiar with the Fine Arts Society because he had exhibited there and he had organised exhibitions there of Irish art. So questions that relate to Ireland's art market in the 20s would include who who made up the art public in Dublin? Um, Did Walker's commercial ventures interfere or facilitate a demand of art? Or did commerce taint or strengthen art? Because these are the debates that were happening at the time in relation to um, the art market in England and in Europe. And while any commercial activity, including an art gallery, arguably exists to serve the private interests of the entrepreneur, as evident in commercial galleries in London, cultural rhetoric was harnessed to address the needs of the commercial sector. So art galleries, to succeed, they needed to be seen to serve the public good, to foster sociability, to advance the arts, to benefit the nation. 
Walker was anxious to be seen in this light, and it seems he was. As emerged in London, the commercial gallery acted as an intermediary with the public and the artist. They identified and marketed their collections to an existing, educated, literate, wealthy audience, those that had always supported the arts. However, they also had to cultivate a larger sphere to attract new money. Walker was attempting to do this in Dublin. In the 1920s, Dublin was cosmopolitan, fashionable, outward-looking. As we saw today with Elaine's paper, it had a vibrant social scene, was home to professional and, bus- professional and business classes. So the art market of the 1920s in Dublin had to serve, dare I say, the old guard and cultivate the new. And by the end of the 19th century in Britain and Europe, art was seen as a commodity, one that could be aspired to by the middle classes. Commercial galleries identified differing economic markets, including a middle class, who wished to emulate their more affluent peers. This fact actually contributed to the original print boom, a more affordable art that emerged in England, in Europe and USA from the 1880s. It was not until the 1920s that we see Walker being the first to exploit the commercial opportunities associated with fine art printing in Dublin. In relation to the experience of commercial art galleries in London, it is essential to cultivate an artist, an audience, and a market. Um, Walker, had, what he had to do was construct an audience for his venture. Or did he? There were members of the public that had regularly attended the, the RHA, the Watercolour Society, the Dublin Sketching Club, and the Dublin Painter Exhibitions. But these were organizations created by and run by artists, of which Walker, yes, was a member and an exhibitor, but the new Irish Salon was a new creation, one that depended on a stable revenue stream to survive. So to stimulate public interest, Walker needed to appeal to the establishment, to those that had always supported the arts, and to create a new market. So when we see what we see is Walker negotiating between the known and the new, how to keep conservative clients out on the on the on side, and then how to encourage new audiences to engage with and support modernist art. So what you're doing is merging a pre-independence society with a new, dare I say, free state society. Or is it the case that art patronage remained with these pre-independent audiences? Um, and therefore, they had to be encouraged to engage with a new vision of Ireland, if that is the landscape, or a new vision of Ireland, if that is modernism. So the creation of an exhibition platform, a display space, emulating the practices of the Royal and Hibernian Academies, was essential. The art exhibition is understood by the public to be demonstrations of taste, of high culture. Attending art exhibitions was seen as intellectual endeavour for demonstrating social standing. As seen in Britain and Europe, the fine art exhibition became part of the city's social and cultural fabric, and were also only known in cities. So to serve an educated citizenry, they became special events in the social calendar. And as a result, like the the, um, costume balls, they were reported on in the press and periodicals. However, while Walker, like other commercial ventures, was emulating um, the Academy exhibitions or those of artists' organisations, such as the Dublin Painters, they differed in the sense that they were removed from the taint of commerce. They were deemed to have the public's interest over private interest. So we know that his association with commerce was an issue in the case of Hugh Lane. Detractors of his municipal gallery accused Lane of seeking to use the gallery to promote his own art dealership. The role of the middleman between the art and the public was seen as contentious, as it had to be negotiated earlier by London's commercial galleries. Walker could not be seen to be money-grabbing or grasping, but rather to seem to serve the the common good. 
Here, Walker had the advantage over London. He also could argue that he was serving a new Ireland, presenting a new Irish art by new Irish artists for an, for an Irish audience. And this was recognised by reviewers of both his exhibitions and this book. And again, looking at London, some commercial adventures were viewed differently if the dealer's or director's class or background became important. The Grosvenor Gallery and the Fine Arts Society were ran, run by men that had association with the London or the English aristocracy or were recognised as, as scholars, academics, coming from wealthy backgrounds. Um, so what these men were viewed as erudite, cultured, their breeding and standing was seen to aid their patrons as they generously imparted knowledge. Their motives were seen to be in accordance with good criticism, artistic judgment, rather than the haggling of a tradesman. They were to be trusted. And the reputation would be important in this regard as well, so that they would be seen. Um, so, so if they had a good reputation, if they were trusted, what they were saying in presenting modern art, then that made modern art more palatable. And we think about Walker, he's from an upper-class background. He was pre from a family going back pre-independence Ireland. He was a regular in society pages, well-travelled. He came from a class he wished to engage with. He presented himself as a conduit for good contemporary art. His agenda was to form public taste. He oversaw the submissions to the Salon, and he alone ensured the pieces were well displayed. And like his London counterparts, he charged a fee to allay costs, but also to ensure a certain worthy clientele would visit the exhibition. So in this, he emulated also London, because one of the things that the galleries in London recognised is that publications were of importance, and they also proved one's expertise, and they also asserted, again, what was good taste. So to finish... Was Walker constructing new audiences, new patrons with a new sense of identity belonging to a new state? Or did the art buying public remain largely comprising of upper classes that were beginning to um, see or deal, uh, who are aware of wider context of what's happening in London, what's happening in Paris? Um, is that who they're looking to? Um, or, and had they to be encouraged to buy Irish subjects so we see this in terms of promoting the subject of the Irish landscape, in the new, in the, uh, and also, so, so in other words, too, should they be encouraged to participate in the ideas of the new Irish state, whilst also developing an appreciation for the modern, um, as we had seen in, 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 in England. Um, Walker, I would argue, it seems, has managed to successfully to do both, to create, present art in a reality of, diversi of, of diversity. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Art and Reality, the role of visual culture in the post-independent state. The symposium took place in the UCD Humanities Institute on the 19th of October 2018 and was a joint initiative between the UCD School of Art History and Cultural Policy and NIVAL, the National Irish Visual Arts Library. The symposium was organised by Roisin Kennedy and funded by UCD Decade of Centenaries. All 10 papers at the symposium were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media and are now available online.